I'm Carrie Miller. Each week, I have a brand new episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. You can catch it on Fridays or stream it anytime you're ready to listen. But every week, we also give you a deep track, a conversation with a writer from the archives. Now, you may hear a writer whose work gives context to the fresh episode, or you may hear a previous show with the same author. And I hope that will give you a sense of the arc of the writer's creative expression. You're here because you care about books and reading. Thank you so much for listening. Now to writer and anthropologist David Troyer. He was in college when he read D. Brown's book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. David Troyer was shaken by its interpretation of Indian history, its brutal candor, its moral power. Mr. Troyer's new book is, as he notes in the prologue, a counter-narrative to Wounded Knee, a contemporary account that pushes beyond the symbolism of the massacre and examines, as David Troyer writes, the heart that beats on. So as David Troyer joins us for the hour, I'm going to ask you to consider something that he suggests and challenges all of us to do. Are we in a cultural and political moment where we stop defining Native Americans by the tragedies that they've endured and instead turn to the relevance and the promise that Native communities hold? What's our collective responsibility on that? You're going to hear this conversation develop and as we talk about Native Americans in art and politics and pushing beyond the symbolism that has hung over Native American history for so long. And I'd like you to think about some of these questions that David and I will talk about. Are we in this moment where we stop defining Native Americans by tragedy? We turn to the relevance and the promise that Native communities hold. Talk to me about that. Think about it. Call in 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. And I'm on Twitter at Carrie NPR. David Troyer's excellent new book is titled The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. And he joins us this morning from California, where it is not snowing. David, I'll bet you listened to that weather report and thought, yeah, well, I had to I had to drive in on California's crowded highways, but at least I'm not in the 18 inches of snow. Yes. It, hi, Carrie. No, it's the opposite. I'm, I'm listening to the weather report, and it makes me miss home so much. It's, um, it's never a dull moment in the skies over Minnesota, that's for sure. Uh, hey, the book is such an extraordinary achievement. Um, welcome and congratulations on that. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think your challenge is really a provocative one here. I mean, you write that you've often been troubled by this kind of solicitude sensibility that characterizes the idea of understanding Indian history. You, I think you put it as it's like volunteering at an after-school program. I, I think that's where we ought to begin. Explain what you mean. Sure. I, what I meant was that if if the wider world tunes into Native communities and Native issues, it usually tunes in as a kind of liberal act, as a, as a kind of community service. They'll, they'll read a story about us or a book by one of us or, or look at the protest at Standing Rock that occurred a couple of years ago. And they'll feel like they're doing some sort of social good by, by reading about us and then feeling a kind of intense emotion whether it's pity or fear or both, and then moving on. And 
in my mind, that kind of attention, that kind of engagement, is is a way of of ameliorating guilt, perhaps, rather than rather than changing anything. And I'm I'm not so much interested in maintaining the status quo. I'm I'm interested in changing it. You know, I really I really hear that. I understand the ambivalence. I I even hear kind of the hesitation in how you're describing that because um, awareness is important too, and often awareness is understanding, right, and hearing and understanding about the full perspective of Native American history. And when you get that, you can't help but see the tragedy in it. But you don't want that to be limiting. Is, Is that right to say? Exactly so. When the the only narrative or the dominant narrative that people use to tell Indian stories or to understand American Indian lives is that of tragedy, and I I I've felt this way most of my life, and I think that a lot of my family and other Native folk maybe feel this way too. That when people interact with us and they they learn who we are, or where we're from, and and the the number one response is is always, oh, I'm so sorry, or that's so tough, or that's so hard. And of course, there are difficult things with which we have to contend. But but I've always felt, well, I, I don't love Leech Lake, my my community, my reservation in Minnesota. I don't love Leech Lake because it's awful. I love it because there are real things happening here. There are it's there are real interesting, complicated, worthwhile things going on, I don't just love Leech Lake because it's horrible. And there, so I, I always felt a huge disconnect between the ways in which people saw us and the ways in which I experienced my own life. And this book is a way to try and, and bring those together. Let me take a call that I, that I think speaks to that, to Simeon in Savage, Minnesota. Hi, Simeon. Curious about what you're making of what David said so far. Sure. Um, well, I, I want to say that I, I called before I gave David a chance to really uh, speak about it at all. <laughs> all right. I, I think I'm the first caller. Uh, point point being that um, I, I can see already a lot more where he's coming from, but I called because my gut reaction was to say uh, that that no, I don't think I don't think we I don't think white folks um, should be allowed to to uh, stop the potential uh, have uh, and those communities have uh, and seeing the accomplishments that they've made. I I think that a lot of times um, that is, for lack of a better word, seen as uh, not a cop-out, but um, a way of of not acknowledging what um, the prejudices Mm -hmm. and the challenges that, that Native Americans have faced. Uh, the, the reason I called so quick was because recently my uh, wife mentioned how uh, she grew up in Minnesota, went to school in Minnesota, and, and she never knew until just, just in the past few years, long after high school, she never knew about um, the massacre in Mankato. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that is not uh, uncommon. I think that's probably the norm, at least for, for folks, um, you know, uh, in, in my generation, having... Uh, you know, graduate in the past 10 or 20 years. Um, but, but to David's point, um, I, I'm going to get off the line and, and I'd like to hear more from him and other callers. Because, I'm, yeah, uh, I, I, I'm I really glad where he's right. coming from, though. Simeon, I'm really glad you called because I think you've put your finger on the 
what the heart of the book. David, what would you say? Um, as as far as I understand it, and assuming you were cutting out just a little bit, at least on my end, um, I think we need more complicated and stories about Native life. The problem with a tragic telling is that tragedy sort of washes out all of the complications and layers and textures of life, and it turns us into statistics, and it turns our experience and our history into a condition. And the opposite, I don't, I'm not interested in telling a story of, of hope. A story of hope is just the other side of the tragic coin, in my opinion. The opposite of tragedy isn't hope. The opposite of tragedy is complexity, depth, nuance, and texture, because those are the things of life. And so, of course, we have to recognize, we have to recognize the challenges that Native people have faced and continue to face. But as we recognize those things, and this is the big point of the book, we have to remember that Native people... And, and Native people, we have to remember this for our own sake and our own peace of mind and our own sanity, that we're not merely victims of history. History isn't just a litany of abuse that has been heaped upon us, that we have been actors in our own lives. Not always with tools of our choosing, not always in the best of circumstances, but we have made our lives and in doing so have made our communities and helped shape this country. And that's the kind of story I want to tell because that's a story of, of complexity. Yeah, David, this is something that I want I wanted to ask you about, which is not only has the the uh, wounded knee and the tragedy and the symbolism around that been limiting for the way non-Native Americans, what they project onto Native Americans, but it's also been limiting within the Native community, hasn't it? Sure. I, I think at least I can only really speak for myself, but I mean, I was a kid. I kind of bought the story about us. I, I sort of saw my tribe and, and my community as a place where good ideas go to die and that I was a member of a once great people, but who were great no more. I, I really believed that in some deep ways when I was a kid and when I was a teenager. And it took moving away when I was in college. It took some distance to really see what was incredible and strong and brilliant and beautiful, really, about about who I was and where I was from. So this book isn't just written to correct the misunderstandings of outsiders. This book is meant to correct misunderstandings that we, we all share. Call here from Ted in on the East Lake Reservation. Hi, Ted. Thanks for calling. I, yeah, I'm not a native, but my wife is. And I, in fact, we're related to Mr. Troyer through marriage. Uh, unless... You know, people know what happened on the genocide policy, uh, and that's still going on because genocide is also cultural, and it's not just killing people. If you can't admit that you got problems, how do you go forward? And an example, I was switching channels the other night. I'm not a Glenn Beck fan, but I just, they were talking about natives, and the one Yoko says, oh, there was never any genocide in the United States. We don't believe in that stuff. Genocide occurred as soon as the Puritans got onto the, uh, into the country. And so 
if people don't know about that, how do you go forward? An example in the United in Minnesota, the man talked about Mankato. Right. A lot of people don't know that there were scalp bounties in Minnesota. Two hundred bucks. I, I want to make sure, David, we have not said, I don't think, but maybe we need to clarify. You are not saying stop teaching history about it, erase the history, only look forward. That's not what this book says. No, no. And Ted, thank you so much for your call and for the reminder. And I think you're right, Ted, 100% right that we cannot live much less move forward unless we live and move forward in recognition of and with awareness of the past. And the past, as well as the present, you point out, is chock full of difficult things. And the point that that I tr- I try to make in the book and, and a point that I try to remind myself, you know, in the in the living of my own life is that as much as we've been shaped by difficult things and as we continue to be shaped by them, they're not the only force in our lives. Um, history is not just, as I said, a story of abuse. Um, our histories are something we've made. So, for instance, we can talk about the residential boarding school system, which was federal policy starting in the eighteen the late 19th century and up until the you know the first few decades of the 20th century that forcibly removed native kids from their homes or coerced them from their homes and sent them to boarding schools many hundreds of miles away with the intent of whitewashing them and mainstreaming them mainstreaming them at these schools kids were were not allowed to speak their tribal languages they weren't allowed to practice their native religions they were punished for doing so it was for many kids incredibly traumatic and it would be easy to see the boarding schools as only resulting in trauma and pain but that's not the full story and brenda child by the way another minnesota ojibwe writer has has made a big part of her career um she's dedicated a big part of her career to exploring residential school boarding schools and and looking at them very closely and she points out, and I, and I try to point out too, that residential boarding schools had other unintended side effects. For instance, you took all these kids from all these different tribes, unknown to one another, or perhaps antagonistically arranged in relation to one another, and you put them in schools, and they they suffered together, they learned together, they they spoke English together. And once they left those schools and moved back to their tribal communities in the 20s and 30s and 40s, they discovered that they had a nationwide network of people that they knew with whom they had relationships on whom they could rely to build strong tribal governments starting in 1934 with the passage of the Indian Reorganization Act. So boarding schools were meant to wipe out Indian communities. They were meant to destroy tribes by destroying families. And in some ways they were successful, but in other ways they created a pan Indian identity on which native people drew for strength and for for networking. So that's just one example of a way in which this this terrible thing that happened to us also empowered us in ways that the government didn't intend to better fight the government. You know, th- through your book, I-, I kept thinking about how 
Native American women seem to be exemplifying how to represent the past, represent the history, and push fully into contemporary life. Uh, of course, Lieutenant Governor Penny F- Peggy Flanagan, Congresswoman Deb Holland, an academic Sandra Boehm, running colleges and the arts, Merritt Johnson, Wendy Redstar. You know, and then I, I kind of jotted down a question. Maybe it is the Native women who have to lead into this new story about what it means to be Native American. Could, might that be I mean, <laughs> that's been the case for a long time. Um, Native women have been leading us and showing us the way for decades, if not centuries. Uh, so that's that's not news, at least to me. And I guess I've been pretty lucky. My mother, um, Margaret Troyer, Margaret Seeley Troyer, is an incredibly, astoundingly strong woman who's who's shown me what community-based and culture-based leadership is uh, since I was a kid. So I've been really lucky <laughs> in my family. But that's been true for a long time. And this is the crazy thing. Someone just asked me about Sharice Davids, the congresswoman from Kansas, uh-huh. and they asked me, you know, is this is this great news for Indian communities? And I said, well, sure, of course it is, but it's even better news for Kansas. <laughs> I said because because let's face it, Sharice Davids understands the the role of federal policy in shaping um, in negative ways um, the lives of Indian people. She understands disenfranchisement. She understands the challenges of Indian communities in their efforts to gain access to health care, education, capital, credit, and power. So now in our, in our modern America, in this age of an increasing wealth gap, when it's increasingly more difficult for all Americans, unless you're part of the very, one of the very rich, to have access to education and health care and capital and credit and all of that stuff, And this is the case in Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, in some ways Minnesota, increasingly in Wisconsin. Who better to lead all Kansans forward in this age of inequality than someone who understands the the historical legacy of structural inequality? So I said, it's not just good for Native folk. Sharice Davids is great for all the people from Kansas. I I do want to acknowledge here for the other side of news here, and as our our conversation continues, that the American Indian movement disempowered women. I mean, you're saying, yes, there have always been strong Native women, but they haven't always been allowed or they've been discouraged from stepping up, stepping forward to lead. And the American Indian movement did some of that. I'm going to go right back to the phones, David, because we have a a listener who I think wants to get to that question that I raised uh, before the break to Verna in Minneapolis. Hey, Verna, thank you so much for waiting through the news. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. What are you thinking about? Well, I was just thinking about how, you know, we talk about a lot of the historical things. I'm Navajo, and even us as Navajos, we've had our, you know, trauma, we call it historical trauma, that happened to our people. And I think a lot of times when we bring up these issues, I think it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, you know. And um, I think maybe a lot of times they don't know what to say, or, um, you know, a lot of times I get a lot of, you know, from non-Native people, you know, I'm sorry, (laughs) you know, which we almost like even though it's not their fault, you know, maybe in their generation, but just to acknowledge that I think means a lot to being a native person. And I think it just, I think being native 
And me living here and living in two worlds, in the white world and the native world, you know, I can manage and I can see both parts of life. Um, but, doubt, but, but when it comes to it, you know, I am a Native American and I see these issues even as a woman who is um, a Native and trying to get representation, especially with me, I'm a runner and trying to get the representation in the running world mm-hmm. and inclusion. It is really hard because I think sometimes will we ever be represented in these things? And I see that fight all the time as I try to get more representation and inclusion for women of Native who, who run. And um, sometimes it always feels like a setback, but at the same time, I feel like it's a resilience that we have. And we always talk about there's resilience in our DNA. And, and I think that's kind of what comes from um, the past. And, you know, with our families and the things that we've gone through, tragedy or whatever, it really does make us strong that we can rise above this and live just like anybody else. Yeah, really good ideas there. David, what does that bring to mind? I think, I think Verna's right. There are ways in which we are far more powerful than even we give ourselves credit for being. And also, as she points out, ways in which things could be better. And, uh, on a, on a personal note, I, when I started writing this book, the week my father passed away, my father is a non-native guy. He's a Holocaust survivor, Jewish Holocaust survivor who fled Europe in, in 1938 and made it to the States. And after some adventures, wound up in Minnesota and married my mother and and with her raised us. And I thought about him a lot when I was writing the book. And shortly before he died, I asked him a question. I said, how can I was pretty pessimistic about this country and about the decisions that were being made and about the politics and so on. And I said, Dad, how can you stand it? I mean, this isn't my country of choice. This is the only country I have. I said, but for you, it's kind of a country of choice as an immigrant, as a refugee. How can you stand the things that it does? And he looked at me like I was stupid. He had this way of looking at you when (laughs) you said stupid things. And and he looked at me and he, he just couldn't understand why it was even a question. And he, he explained it to me. He said, look, this country saved my life. If, if she hadn't taken me in, I, I would have died. I would have been sent back to Europe and killed. No one else was taking me. Only America took me. He said, so it saved my life. And so it's my job to make it better. It's my job to call it out when it's, it's, it's um, behaving less than, than perfectly when it's doing its worst. It's my job to stand here and, and remind it to do its best. And I thought about that a lot when I was writing the book. I missed him and I thought about him in the sense that he brought to his life. And I, I came to see myself and to realize that that this book was was partly an attempt to honor him by doing the same thing. This book is meant to remind us and to remind the country to do better, to be more inclusive, to be more supportive, to be a place not just where, in the words of Ronald Reagan, a person can still get rich, but to be that other place, that other place that's promised in this country's founding documents where we can actually experience and and uh, 
and a country that actually promotes life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, a country that protects its weakest citizens, that curbs the excesses of, um, curbs its own excesses. And uh, I don't think we can be that country unless we recognize the country's sins and we remind it of its virtues. And what better place to do that than in looking at American Indian history. And this is one of the big points of the book. I don't think you can understand America unless you understand us. It's not, we're not a sideshow. We are the show. America's first revolutionary act when colonists dumped tea in Boston Harbor, if we remember that moment, they didn't just dump tea to protest the British. They dressed up first as American Indians and then dumped tea in the harbor. Since the very beginning, America has understood itself in relation to us. And you know we have been a part of America's self-conception since day one. And I don't think you can properly understand America, its worst behaviors and its best ideals, unless you focus in and unless you understand American Indian history. So it's not just that we've been shaped by this country. We have, through our, as Verna points out, through our insistence on our existence, we have served as a reminder of what this country can be in both bad and good ways. Your... Um... Your thoughts about activism today are, are, are kind of complicated. I went back to read the piece that you wrote in 2016 uh, about what was going on at Standing Rock, and you were disputing some of the tribal leaders' claims that this was the kind of narrative that D. Brown writes about and Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. So I pulled out a, a couple paragraphs, and I, I want to share this with listeners you're right. But to say that the story of the Dakota Access Pipeline is another iteration of that old Western story is to repeat the mistakes of past protests and movements. We situate ourselves in a position of powerlessness. It absolves us of our own complicity in how the world of power around us has been shaped. It absolves our tribal leaders of their reluctance to show up for meetings and to fight diligently and thanklessly in the trenches of numb process. And then you add, it also absolves all of us, Indians and other Americans, for the greatest sin of all. We made the government that is doing this to us. And that's where the civil rights movement, where Dr. King becomes more relevant. We have to show up to get up. Now, there's going to be some people right now who listen to this who call to say some of the things that we've already heard from listeners you still feel as strongly about about the way you phrase that today as you did then? Um, yes, I do. I, as my as the story of my father might illustrate, I hold the American government to a really high standard. It's it's got to do its best. I hold our tribal elected leaders to an even higher standard. It's one thing to be screwed over by the American government. It's another thing for us to screw ourselves over. So, yes, I, I still believe that. And in relation to Standing Rock, this, this sort of the way that the conflict was framed as, as kind of cowboys versus Indians, I think, missed the larger point, which is that the Dakota Access Pipeline wasn't white people versus Indian people. It was corporate power versus the common good. And in 
if we can see it that way, I think we can see the actions of the of the of the activists at Standing Rock in a much more interesting light. They were taking the hit for all of us. They were doing their best and putting their lives and their bodies on the line to protect all of us, not to protect tribal interests per se, but to protect the communal interest we all have in in weaning ourselves from our dependence on fossil fuels and for exploring new technologies and new ways of meeting you know our our collective needs and for that i can't i can't i don't think i can properly communicate how proud and how impressed i was by the protest and the effects of that protest although the pipeline did go through and people might want to think of the protest as yet another lost cause i don't think that's true after standing rock it is impossible for tribal and local governments to make the same decisions they once made about pipelines among other things that that our governments tribal local state and federal governments have to think much harder um can't just glad hand their way to some sort of sweet leasing deal with another power company because they know that not only are native activists but american activists are going to be up in their face about it so in that sense Standing Rock was an incredible success, and that success is still being felt today. You know, that that's really an interesting question to put out there, because does the – and maybe I'll open this up to some listeners – does the fact that the pipeline is going to go through, I mean, mean that what happened at Standing Rock, the, the fact that the, the protesters didn't prevail means that we're still in the kind of uh, – power dynamic that we've always been in? Or listeners this morning, do you think David is right, that something essential changed? And that's really what activism is about, right? You may not get the thing that you're protesting or activating around. You may not win every battle on that. But did something essential change? And because Standing Rock is something that we covered closely, I'd I'd like to hear our listeners on that. 651 Two two seven six thousand eight hundred two four two two eight two eight. You can tweet in your thoughts on that uh, uh, at Carrie NPR to Anne in Roseville. Hi, Anne. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Um, I want to go a little bit different direction. I, I have my opinions about Standing Rock, and yes, it, it's sad that the pipeline is still going to go through. But I'd like um, Mr. Troyer to talk about the importance of learning native languages. Um, in one of his books, he talks about a school in Wisconsin where native students um, are pretty much immersed in learning their native language, and they've done very well compared to a lot of native students. Can you talk about that? I'd love to talk about that, and I'd love to mention the hard work of the people at Lacoudere Reservation in Wisconsin, where the school is that you mentioned, and the name of the school is Waduko Dotting. Ojibwe Immersion School, and it's it is such an incredible program with incredible teachers and administrators who are turning so many things around for the people in that community. As my my brother is a, is a really active in Ojibwe language revitalization. My my brother Anton, I think he might have been on the show in the past. Oh yeah. He's uh, he's he's an an incredible speaker of English and Ojibwe, 
And he put it this way. He said, you know, the government has spent a couple hundred years trying to destroy us. So why would we look to it to, to try and save us? And his point being that it's up to us to chart our own course. And it's up to us to revitalize ourselves by way of our ceremonies and our language and our life ways. And that's exactly what's happening at Wuduka Dotting. And, and the students from that school um, receive almost all of their instruction in Ojibwe. And they perform, they perform better than the state average on all of their standardized testing in English, math, and other subjects. And part of the reason why is that they feel like their education is for them as opposed to the ways in, in which a lot of Native people have experienced education as something that's been done to us. And that goes back to residential boarding schools. And so... So I'm glad you brought up that question, and and I'm happy to have a chance to talk about it. There are incredible things happening in Indian country, um, and and the Ojibwe language movement in Minnesota and Wisconsin, among other places, is just one one aspect of that. You know, I want to recommend to, to listeners who are going to read the book the passages about Indian religion. This was really enlightening. I, I was not aware of the American Indian Religious Freedom Act of 1978, you say it was profound because it reinvigorated the ceremonies that were often practiced in a kind of secrecy. So 40-some years later, um, what, what does that act's passage mean? Most Americans are shocked to learn that it was broadly illegal to practice your native religion until the passage of the Indian Religious Freedom Act in 1978. Shocking indeed. Yeah. We did not experience, we did not enjoy religious freedom until then. Now, of course, many of the provisions um, in the laws that were on the books that, that suppressed our religions weren't being enforced or not weren't being enforced in the same way as in the in the 60s and 70s but the passage of the act was was long overdue and and, and a welcome a welcome occurrence and for so many years if you were a traditional indian person you were looked down on as being backwards as being ignorant and you were frozen out of government jobs of tribal jobs, you were thought to be unfit for leadership. And and so even if you had community support, the Bureau of Indian Affairs in its sort of most uh, paternalistic iterations wouldn't approve of your election to, to council. Um, you were in, in the early days, if you practiced your native religion, you were oftentimes denied annuities and food, shelter, clothing if you practiced your religion. And so you'd have to convert just to survive. So the passage of that act meant a lot to a lot of people. And now, at least in Ojibwe country, our strongest leaders are our traditional leaders who stayed with their tribal ways, you know, through those dark decades when it was illegal to do those things. And it's, it's, um, it's really impressive. Call here from Carolyn in Bloomington. Hi, Carolyn. You called to talk about Standing Rock. 
Hello, yes. I am. uh, I I was a Lutheran minister serving in the town where the Dakota Access Pipeline started Mm -hmm. at the time of of Standing Rock going on. And I had seen uh, for the four years that I lived in North Dakota just uh, some terrible pollution and some bad behavior by the oil industry. And so I went uh, to Standing Rock, and it was just one of the most beautiful things that I have ever seen. Um, I, I was there on the day that that um, tribes from the Northwest paddled down the river just to, to Standing Rock, and they said, we want to talk with your leader, who at that time was Dave Archambault. And uh, so the, the leader came down to the river, and they had a, a conversation for about 20 minutes, and they asked for permission to step onto the land, and it was just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And it, it gave me so much hope um, Carolyn, after, after it, living it, in the oil field. If I, if I just might, since you were there, what about this question that David raised that and, and that I kind of propelled in that it didn't succeed? Pipeline is right. going to be built. What does it tell right. us about, yeah, activism that follows? Well, it, it's certainly given me a lot of hope to try to work towards renewable energy. And as, as David talked about, the tribes who built this network uh, with one another in the boarding schools, for instance, that you really saw the tribes coming together and cooperating in a way that um, maybe hadn't been done in, in recent history anyway. And so it was, I, I think, the, the Line 3 debate that's going on right now, I think a lot of people were inspired right. by Standing Rock, right. even though it was, um, it was very unfortunate that the pipeline did get built. It was, I mean, it, I think it was just so incredibly moving for us who were there. Um, Carolyn, yeah, I, it, I appreciate the call. I've only got hope. I've only got a couple minutes left, David. I wanted to give you a chance to to say something on that. Yeah, Carolyn. First, thank you for for being there. And what you mentioned is is something worth thinking about. That that Standing Rock may have been ineffective in the short term, but it's been incredibly effective in the long term. And one of the ways that it has been it remains powerful. Um, is exactly what Carolyn was talking about, which is the forging of coalitions across different tribes and also, you know, between, you know, many Americans like Caroline herself. And basically that, that protest was, I don't know how to put it, but but it was America's best ideals in practice and a reminder that if we are going to get anywhere, it's going to be by building coalitions and networks and working together. And that's just another way in which Native people have been reminding all Americans that this is really the only way that we're going to fix anything. So thank you so much for that comment and for and for being there. You have a uh, an interesting take on the blood quantum issue. You have a, a, I guess, short chapter on this. And you write, blood matters, and blood is and will continue to be used as a way to determine who is in a tribe and who isn't. But it is useless to determine who is and isn't part of a culture. And of course, this puts me in mind of the controversy that's followed Elizabeth Warren, 
ha- have you come to some conclusion about about what she's saying about this in light of what you've written here? I have. And my conclusion is that I'm far more interested in her economic policies and, <laughs> and her thoughts about about how to fix the, the 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 growing wealth gap in this country than I am about her identity politics. To my mind, um, and th- I should say that this is only my opinion and other people have very different opinions and, and I respect them for it. But in to my mind, the fact that she grew up hearing she was native in Oklahoma is not surprising because there are so many native people in Oklahoma. It used to be Indian territories. She grew up hearing those stories took a DNA test, turns out those stories are true. Um, And to me, that's okay. Good enough. She's not claiming uh, a tribal connection. She's not claiming uh, a native culture. She's not even claiming a native community. She's just saying it's part of her heritage. And that seems to be true. So what? Let's move on. And I feel like we let ourselves be distracted by this question of her identity when when the really interesting thing about her and the threatening thing about her to the status quo are the ways in which she wants to dismantle uh, and and change America's economic policies. That's interesting. Her identity, not so much. It was really a pleasure to read the book and even more thank so you. to talk to you about it, David. Thank you so much for making time. For us Thank you, Carrie. It was so great to be on the show. It's the second best thing to being back home. And I, I miss it. <laughs> I miss much. Minnesota. Thank you. Uh, the book is called The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. I'm recommending it to everyone. I hope you'll read it. David Troyer with us today from California. <laughs> 